The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week, our main focus is climate change. Later in the podcast, I'll talk to Anna Summers-Cox, the founder of the Art Newspaper and former chair of Venice in Peril, about the threat posed to World Heritage Sites in the Mediterranean by sea level rises caused by climate change. It's also the annual Art Basel in Miami Beach Art Fair this week, and I speak to David Castillo, a gallerist from Miami, about Art Basel and how Miami has changed in the 15 years since the fair first came to Florida. But first this week, Olafur Eliasson. The Danish-Icelandic artist announced this week that he'll stage a work on the theme of climate change called Ice Watch at two sites in London from the 11th of December. The work consists of blocks of ice that slowly melt. The ice was responsibly taken out of the sea in Greenland. 24 blocks of ice will be outside Tate Modern at Bankside and six more will be outside Bloomberg's European headquarters in London's financial district. Bloomberg Philanthropies are sponsoring Eliasson's work. Icewatch is timed to coincide with a meeting of world leaders in Katowice, Poland, and it follows a chilling report published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, in October. That stark warning spelt out that we have a 12-year window in which to limit the worst effects of global warming. Olafur Eliasson joins me on the line from his studio in Berlin now. Olafur, you've staged this work twice before. Can you tell me about those formats that you've displayed it in in the past and also what kind of effect it had how how the audience reacted yes absolutely first time we did ice watch was in copenhagen when the so-called ipcc board released the paper or the document based on which the paris summit the cop 21 took place so so the so the scientific report with all the data all the sort of science and work and evaluations and gathering of uh, of weather you know analytical material that report is essentially what created the foundation on which the COPS, the, the UN's body for monitoring the climate and recommending solutions, are meeting, right? So the first time a real serious version of this paper was released was in Copenhagen. All the scientists were there. And I said, we need to make that report tangible. This is probably the most important document since, I don't know, since the Bible or something, right? And in that sense, I called the mayor's office in Copenhagen. I found philanthropic support. And we, we, on the street, within very short time, showed a smaller or the first version of Icewatch. And suddenly, I think the, the sort of the broader public became aware, my God, all these UN scientists are in town. And they are, they are you know, they're releasing this document. They're talking about the data. And for me as an artist, it was very important to say, well, data stays up in our head. Well, we see data in the paper, but emotional change, I mean, to, to actually react on data, you need, you need to make data explicit so that we can touch it, we can feel it. So I said, okay, the way, the, why don't we bring the, the inland ice, the glacier ice from Greenland and just put it on the street and people can walk over to it and touch it and you know, look at it. And, and what obviously happens is that it's very touching. I mean, when you look at the ice, it's very beautiful. It's bluish, clear. It has lots of small bubbles. And as the ice melts, the bubbles, the, the bubbles they crack like little pop or popcorn. So there is, there's a little, not so loud, but there's a little concert of popping. 
And and what it is, of course, a glacier has a lot of pressure. I mean, it's so heavy, so the bubbles are under pressure, right? So once the ice melts, suddenly you hear like pop, and that's because that little bubble has a lot more pressure than the outside, and 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 so on. So it's very interesting that that it is very physical and active for a lot of senses. In Copenhagen, I met then you know the the people who are preparing from uh, for the Paris summit, the 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 friends. The famous French ambassador to Copenhagen at the time, François Semery, the, the French foreign minister came to Copenhagen. He heard about it. He went to Greenland and, and somehow the UN got hold of the idea of doing the ice what's in Paris then. And interestingly, the COP21 in, in Paris, the famous one where, where, you know, where there was the agree on maximum two degrees increase uh, in, in temperature and, and the recommended was actually one and a half degree which was proposed by the small island states, right? So, but, but that was based on the scientific document from Denmark and together with the UN and the mayor's office, the amazing Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, uh, we did it on the streets, despite the fact that two weeks earlier there had been the terror attacks. So I really want to give credit to the sort of the Paris sort of sense of um, uh, not changing this, the, the sort of, public agenda. Uh, uh, that was actually quite impressive because obviously everybody was traumatized and it's not like once you have a terror attack, it's not like that the climate concern, which is so abstract altogether, is the main thing. But but credit for the, to the friends for actually pulling through anyway, right? really in the most, the most amazing way. The, the, the latest iteration is in connection with the Katowice um, meeting of all these world leaders. Did you consider showing it there, or was it always? Did you always feel that London was more appropriate? So now there is the there is the last version, or the one version we are doing right now, right? And the the thing is, I spoke to the UN again. the The Katowice meeting is a, is about the application or the the ratification of what was agreed on in Paris. Obviously, they're gonna also discuss the fact that the recommendations is now a, a, a bit lower. Now one and a half degrees seems to be the maximum. But but essentially the, the, the Polish COP is, is a, I wouldn't call it more practical, but it is about, well, what are we actually doing? And obviously the truth is not enough. So I, I then started calling around and said, listen, could we do the ice watch again? Isn't it, isn't it, you know, as urgent now? And I was actually interested in, again, not to be at the scientist side, but to be at a very public side. And I have a, a lovely collaboration with Bloomberg Philanthropy. They have been supporting my Little Sun solar uh, project for a long time. And I called the people at Bloomberg who has just opened this quite amazing and very sustainable building in London. And I said to them, why don't we do something in London? And it turned out they were collaborating with Vanity Fair to create a kind of a smaller site event at the same time as Katowice. So this means there is actually within the Bloomberg sort of system, the Bloomberg philanthropic system, a, a small climate summit as well, as, as Michael Bloomberg has showed great you know, commitment. He was pulling very much for the Americans to stay within the Paris Agreement as Trump pulled out of it. And he's become a special envoy for the climate uh, on, on the UN as well. And I, I was funded then from Bloomberg and I found a site in London uh, by the Tate where obviously I have a relationship. I worked with them so often before. Yes. So, so now for Katowice, we are trying to bring about the same thing. How does it actually feel 
to put your hand on their eyes and feel on your skin what on earth are they talking about in Katowice. The thing it seems to me that, that this work does very cleverly is it works with the idea of time in all sorts of ways and 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 visualizes the complexity of time that the discussions around climate encapsulate. Can you say something about that? Yeah, well, I think that the fact that the ice is so compelling to look at, what, one thing which is, of course, amazing is that you look at something which is 20,000 years old maybe 25 or 15,000 years old, you're looking at old, old glacier ice. The ice, um, how should I say it? The ice is melting away in front of your eyes. And there is suddenly this notion of, oh my God, this old, like 20,000 years, and it's going to be gone in a week in yes. front, here in London, right? So there's something really quite explicit about the way that this is, oh no, this amazing ice, how, how, let's, let's do something to protect it or something. Somehow, and and in that sense, um, because obviously the, the the time element, which is so difficult with the whole sustainable discussion or the climate discussion, is that it is a, it is you know it's sort of outside of our lifespan horizon. We know that risks and worrying that my my worry about the climate is like kind of after I die. So so it's always I think it's always when you have a climate discussion, it's always great to have a child in the room or a grandchild in the room. Do you know what I mean? So, yes. So to make explicit the time that is not tangible, right? The time that is outside of our immediate concern. And and in that sense, um, this idea of the 25,000 year, which is so abstract anyway, I mean, in that sense, there is, I think, some potential in we need to understand when talking about the planet and sustainability, we need to be less egoistic and, see beyond our lifespan and our time. And even though this is so, how should I say, it's like, I wouldn't call it abstract, but it, this is like a thought. We need to make it physical. I mean, the, the thing about, about that physicality is that it, it, it impresses upon people the actual urgency. Because as you say, there is this sort of idea of it being beyond our lifetime. But certainly in the IPCC's most recent report, it's, they make it very clear that there is this 12-year window that we have where if humankind does enough, we can stop it tipping over into the two degrees warming and keep it at 1.5, which everybody accepts that is going to happen. Um, so you, in a way, again, you, you know, your, your work visualizes that urgency, doesn't it? Yeah, I, will, I mean, I, I think it's for me, for me, my work is about the relationship between individual opportunity. What can we do as individuals and the more systemic sort of changes which are needed too. We need, you know, the politicians, the public sector to to take responsibility and to introduce systemic changes, right? We, 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 we need the private sector to take upon the sustainable goals and actually make commitments and, and stick to them. But, but, but these larger systemic things, which is, of course, what UN is also sort of focusing on in terms of recommending nation states of what what can they actually do as a state or as a, as a country but we the civic sector the civic society we need to take individual stands and individual sort of micro changes or nano changes or, and and in that sense i think the pro, the idea with the the eyes in that sense is just to make tangible or make in a very straightforward way well 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 what on earth is going on, right? Or what is going on with the earth for that matter. And I'm, of course, my art 
in a sense, has always been about this this notion of well, my personal and and my critical experience of reality or of the world or of my context. What what does that mean to me, and how can I change that? Do I am I a consumer of the world, or am I a co-producer? Am I a co-author of the world? And to sort of shift the notion to say that you are not pacified, you're not you're not nothing. You are actually important you have agency you can do things you can vote you can actually influence also the systemic changes so in that sense i'm i'm very curious about and and i understand it's complex right but i'm very curious about can we make people into change agents and drive the civic society into a civ, a, 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 a systemic force we should not vote for the politicians who simply are mismanaging our future, right? So that's a systemic individual relationship. But of course, we need movement on the kind of communal, the local, the civic level. We, we need action on the floor. Do you feel the work's become more important since you first staged it in the sense that when you first did it, um, President Obama was in power in the United States, for instance, and he was somebody who recognised climate change is uh, the importance of climate change. Um, but obviously, since we've had all these populist um, uh, governments coming into power, and many of them are antagonistic to climate change action. So therefore, do you think this this work becomes all the more important because of that? Yeah, I mean, that would be the obvious thing to say that we need more civic courage we need more people who actually take a stand and and you know it's it's honorable to actually become an activist and stop what you disagree with even physically quite literally i think it's honorable to 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 sort of rise up against the people who are in fact ruining your grandchildren's lives or your children's lives Mm -hmm. but but i also think that it's important to notice that you know maybe the, the 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 how should I say maybe the the exploitive nature of Trump has actually promoted a greater climate consciousness in America with a stronger civic movement, because frankly speaking, yes, I mean as as much as we liked Obama and 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 the world at the time, but it's not like he did a lot for the climate. I mean we shouldn't forget that he it, it was not like I mean he was sort of climate conscious, yes, but it's not like he was in any way radical. No. Not, not not at all, not radical at all, and and in that sense, the urgency has been around for a while, and we see very few leaders sort of uh, testing their voters' confidence. I mean, we have small uh, island states who are doing radical things, right? Like the small islands, and luckily they are in Katowice too. I mean, we see the Fiji Islands are buying land in other countries to move whole communities within our lifetime. So so we see small island states being much more radical in their in their sort of approach. And we see the people who are forced into questions about climate justice, right? The sub-Saharan countries, for instance, where you are likely to have a much greater climate impact with them having no, re- they had no, uh, you know, stake in creating the climate uh, problems, right? So, yes. and, and, and suddenly they are becoming very active because they are like, and, and this, of course, is what's going on in Katsu, which is you have the, the, the well-off states and then you have the vulnerable states uh, and the vulnerable states saying, well, you have to pay for our adjustment to the climate. So I guess this is the kind of main topic, actually. But And, and suddenly we, 
you know, civic society need to come up with solutions that, that we think is important. That I just heard actually from the amazing Mary Robinson, the former Prime Minister of Ireland, um, who came to my studio last visit promoting her book on climate justice. I just heard in the discussion with her that some people are actually suggesting that if you, because of the climate, become a climate refugee, right? And that could be a lot of people you are automatically given a passport to one of the climate perpetrators. So let's say that Ethiopia, for instance, if that's 90 million people, right? Let's say Ethiopia, a part of Ethiopia, this, the whole sort of eastern part, which is very, very drought endangered, if that really goes into a climate, this, let's say that there's 30 million, 40 million people simply, uh, they, they could be climate refugees. And let's say the UK, the UK, who's been so busy with the Brexit that they have done nothing in particular to publicly discuss the climate, right? Yeah. Because their worry pool is full of Brexit, right? So why don't we give the 30, 40 million people from the climate, potential climate refugees from Ethiopia, why don't we give them a British passport? Isn't that just fair to say that the countries that created the problem, they need to host the people who don't know where to go? And instead, and now we're forcing them into refugee camps. And you know what do what know I? So, and I I love this idea. It's a very famous. There was the I think it was called the Nansen passport, 1920. When you know when you know it was the very at the very beginning of you. And this idea of you know you get a passport as a refugee and you can travel to any country you want to, right? Yes. But so so I so I think people totally underestimate the gravity of the situation, and in that sense. You know, Katowice, I'm so curious to see what's going on. But the truth is, um, we, the, the scale of what we are facing, it's, it's a lot more uh, robust. You, your work right from the start has addressed climate change, hasn't it? I mean, you did the Glacier series in 1999, for instance, that series of photographs. So this has been at the, absolutely at the core of your work right since the start. Yeah, I've been interested in nature. And I've been interested in for, for a long time in the so-called relationship between culture and nature, or the man and nature, or woman, woman, of course, and, and the so-called Anthropocene. So the sort of experiential, should I say, context of, or, or the experiential conditions. What, what does it mean to actually not experience nature, but experience yourself as being a part of the nature, the Anthropocene, right? The consequences of your presence and the sense of presence simply. And Iceland was always a, you know, that was my toolbox, so to speak. The, I was I, I, being from there inspired me, and so on and so forth. I did the weather project, but frankly speaking, the weather project was both about drawing attention to the ephemeral within the city, right? The weather, for instance, but it was also to sensitize people to say, well, maybe the ephemera and the collective, and and, and you know, when I say the ephemera, I mean our sense of nature, the sense of the the atmosphere. And the collective needs to be seen connected. I mean, the shared experience of nature in our city. It's so, and, and so I, it would be a little unfair to say that I've addressed, addressed climate you know, specifically throughout my, I've addressed questions about ecology and nature and experience. And obviously the climate, evolving climate uh, debate has that as, at its very heart. And I was interested by something that you said about the weather project, which was that at the time, the discussions around that work 
were plural and climate was one of them but but there were lots of other things discussed but but the the further we get away from that work the more and more it's discussed in terms of climate change yeah it's um i get i guess maybe there was a very deep subconscious notion of a emerging field but not yet verbalized field but emotionally, it had resonance with people. So when I said the weather project, I think there was a sense that people recognized to address the weather as a space of importance, maybe not urgency, but at, at, of relevance, actually gave language to something that had not yet been fully verbalized. So there was, I mean, in, 19, in 2003, there was that increasing sense of things changing. I mean, while preparing the weather project during the summer, and I was also doing the catalog for, for, for the show, of course, The Sun, which is funny, the, 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 the worst paper in Britain called The Sun, right? <laughs> the Sun had an amazing cover, which is just said the hottest day in history. And, and you know, to, for The Sun to put that on the cover, I think just reflects the fact that people were paying attention more and more to something is a bit odd in 2003 right right of course it's, fu- it's funny it's called the sun and then it says the hottest day in history and, <laughs> and so and, and i was doing the weather projects so i put that cover in the catalog of the show and i was making reference to the fact that we need to be we, we need to challenge our numbness uh, are we have we become numb i mean to each other to to our moral compasses to activism to ha- have we lost it somehow right have we just become consumers dull uh, and, and funny enough, I mean, 2003, it sounds like yesterday, right? But there was no Instagram. There was, there was no, I mean, I, I guess there was Facebook, right? But, but there was no social media. Isn't it the wildest thing? And have they enabled us to become critical, to become activists, to take a, a moral stand, to become, you know, pro- progressive? No, they are not. It's just so funny. We always think the internet is like an amplifier of, of, of democracy. I mean, I don't see that, even though I'm an active social media participant. But so with regards to, you know, where, where do, how do people look back at that work today? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, a, I'm very happy people still remember it. And I, I'm proud to have done it and humble for the attention that it got. But, but, but I think a great work of art is great because it, it keeps maintaining a relevant position in the contemporary discussion. So when we talk about the weather project, we actually talk about today. I don't think people talk about back then, right? Yeah. I think that's an that's a important sort of um, distinction because talking about the past is kind of like an escapism. Oh, back then all museums were much better than they are now. But to talk about, I mean, to go in and see a great work of a, of historic art somewhere, we look at it today. So it's I think it's more the question of what does the past offer the presence rather than than the opposite and before you go i can't not ask you about the fact that you are returning to tate modern next july with a big survey show will climate change feature in that show the survey show at the tate next summer um will have a a a kind of substantial overview of my work throughout 20 years so it's a very very exciting thing for me and uh, as i'm actually working on it now i can see that certain themes have been continuous the relationship we have to nature, how we de- how we define nature, has been at the heart of my work throughout the whole thing. So, so that will be in the show, 
And in that, there is that whole relationship. Well, how do we then act upon the na nature of the world, right? The, what, what is atmospheres? That's in the show too. So on the other side, I also have to say, well, the way that I like to work with art is that I offer the viewer or the visitor to my show to reflect upon their own position within the, within the context of the work they're looking at. So do they, or do I succeed offering the people the feeling that the artwork is actually looking back at them or the artwork for that matter is listening to their stories. So somebody looks, I hope at my art and say, oh, this is, this is the work that is expressing something on my behalf and not on my expanse, right? And, 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 and for me, if somebody who's sort of busy finding out what is going on with the climate, that is the moment where that work says, well, I think the climate is the topic here. And the person says, yes, this is a work about the climate. But, but I also think on, as me, for me as an artist, I need to be careful to tell people what they think, because that's me telling people they're not smart. I need to tell people, you are smart, your idea is great. I don't have to say what you should think about. You think, and I think a great work of art actually listens to you. And you leave the museum saying, well, somebody listened to me. I must be good enough. I am actually an activist. Olafur, that's a good point to end our discussion. Thank you so much for talking to me. Excellent. Thank you also, Ben. Good luck with it. Icewatch is expected to be on view in London until around the 21st of December, depending on the weather. You can find out more at icewatchlondon.com. Now, in the current print edition of the art newspaper, Anna Summers-Cox, the paper's founder, has written an article about climate change's effect on heritage around the Mediterranean. It follows a report in the scientific journal Nature, which warns of potentially catastrophic effects to World Heritage sites. Anna is with me now to discuss the report. Anna, the report in the art newspaper is based on new research which was published in the scientific journal Nature. Can you explain more about that research? Uh, this team of scientists at Kiel University in Germany decided to look at um, the World Heritage Sites. Those are the sites decreed to be particularly important by UNESCO around the Mediterranean that were either at 10 metres or below um, in relationship to sea level to see what would happen to them with the projected levels of sea level rise by the end of this century. And what they came up with was pretty depressing. So what did they come up with? Well, um, they modelled it. Modelling, by the way, means projecting, sort of using mathematics, a lot of data put together. Um, and um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is this huge supranational organisation that sifts research into climate change, um, has a number of scenarios. So the first scenario, which is if we are all very, very good and we all stop burning fossil fuels um, and uh, in the next 12 years, uh, we might keep uh, the rise in temperature to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Well, then the rise in the water level in the Mediterranean will be about 36 centimetres. But the fourth scenario, which is the one if we are completely out of control and um, the ice caps uh, at the poles continue to melt and melt faster than melting now, um, you know, the, all bets are off and you're getting into sea level rise of 1.5 metres, which means that 
Um, these 49 sites around the Mediterranean, which are nearly all rather ancient cities, and obviously in the old days people built their cities where transport was good, so they built them on the sea, um, a very large number of them are basically had it. And, um, for example, Venice has completely had it. So so let's talk about what which places we're talking about here, because they're some of the biggest uh, tourist destinations in Europe and around the Mediterranean, aren't they? Yes. Um, there's Venice, there is Genoa, there is Istanbul, um, there's Carthage, the ancient city of Carthage from which Hannibal came. Uh, there's Ravenna, the great Byzantine town with one, well, I mean, not, uh, it's not a very big town, but it's got fantastic Byzantine mosaics. There is Ferrara, Renaissance city in Italy. Um, a very high percentage, 19 of these sites are in Italy. The next highest uh, number is down the Dalmatian coast, Yugoslavia, what you speak Yugoslavia, um, then Greece. Um, but, um, and it isn't just the, the actual World Heritage Sites, it's the territory around them. So a lot of other places will also um, have great problems. So um, this isn't something that's been talked about so far. We've been talking about, you know, um, damage to crops, you know, migration and so on. But actually a major part of world's history is going to be attacked by sea level rise. Now, in, in the report in the art newspaper what you've done is you've contacted a number of these organisations, these World Heritage Sites, and you have asked them how prepared they are for climate change and its effects. What sort of responses did you get? Most people have never heard of this report. Um, a small number of sites said they realised they had a big problem. Ferrara, for example, um, says that they're working with uh, the European Union and they've got a big collaboration going. Um, Venice, um, the, the person responsible for the environment for the town council, refused to speak to me, although I knew from his secretary that he'd actually read the report. And the reason he didn't want to speak to me was because he knows damn well that the mobile barriers that are being installed, which are 10 years late, but we hope will be working from 2020, actually will be useless by the time we get to the end of the century because they would have to be up permanently to protect the city from sea level rise, at which point the lagoon would turn into a stinking swamp. Um, so that, that's why he wouldn't speak to me. Uh, Istanbul, they said, were worried about earthquakes, but we're not thinking about um, water at the moment. Pompeii, um, the, um, the, the city covered by lava south of Naples, uh, said, uh, oh, well, 100 years off. Um, we can't think about that far ahead. It's, it, it, exactly. I mean, if you read this report, and it is, I'm afraid to say, quite depressing, it really reflects the complacency that we're seeing everywhere about climate change in the sense that, um, uh, well, a great example is that the day that the IPCC announced this 12-year window that we've got in order to make radical changes to prevent global warming reaching two degrees, that that same day, six British newspapers had reports about two people on a reality television show having sharing a kiss on their front pages and no mention of this catastrophic news. There is a widespread complacency and apathy about climate change that it seems to me is in, almost impossible to... to um, engage people in in changing is is that your perception about um based on the responses that people gave to to the inquiries that you made yes i mean i i dare say most of the people we talk to actually do believe in climate change but they hadn't actually connected up with anything that would affect them and 
most people look to the ends of their lives and not beyond that. And some countries do that more than others. For example, the Thames barrier um, uh, is a wonderful example of people planning well ahead because the Thames barrier, which is having to be raised more and more frequently, um, they're projecting that it will carry on defending London from being flooded until 2070. And they now have a plan for what's going to happen afterwards. But that is exceptional. Uh, and quite a lot of these places around um, the Mediterranean are in countries where people don't plan beyond the following week. I mean, it always makes me think of the famous cartoon in the New Yorker, which has a man falling off the Empire State Building, and he's whizzing past the 36th floor with a big smile on his face, and he's saying, so far, so good. <laughs> um, the the IPCC obviously are targeting um, uh, individual people and their behaviour, but obviously it takes it, it's going to take governments and uh, corporations most to make the changes that will that will affect this issue. Um, do you think culture, lobbying about culture will in any way affect the way that governments respond to this situation? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, that's why we published, we devoted three pa- whole pages of the art newspaper to this. But um, I think it's going to need some major catastrophe. I mean, I think New York is going to have to be very severely flooded or, you know, some something where where our lives are changed in their sort of essence um, for people to get together. Then it, it will need, you know, the whole European Union to act, for example. And uh, we've got to wait for Trump to be... Um, to be Whatever, whatever's going to happen to Trump. I mean, we've got, Trump is a, is a major, major obstacle and a, a really very serious, um, dam- very, very seriously damaging to the world's future. That's right. So Trump has said that he is pulling out of the Paris Accords, that he was pulling the US out of the Paris Accords, which is this massive supranational um, agreement that was made several years ago. Uh, and uh, and other nations appear to have appear to say that they would compensate for the US, but still the US's um, lack of action in this area is the biggest factor, isn't it? Yes, and and not setting the right example, um, and 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 allowing people in whose interest it is uh, not to believe in climate change to say, oh well, you know, if the president of the United States thinks that, that's okay. If we could turn to Venice, and this is a subject you have a special interest in because you were once chair of Venice in Peril. Um, there were recent floods in Venice that it seems to me were enormously alarming. How much are they related to climate change and how much are they related to other things? Um, they are related to climate change insofar as um, uh, climate change leads to weirder and stronger weather. Um, they, they happen because of a strong wind blowing up the Adriatic, which is a rather narrow uh, strip of water, pushing the water up towards Venice, low pressure systems, lots of rain, and um, uh, that creates what's called a storm surge. And we'll be seeing lots more storm surges everywhere as a consequence of climate change. So you get two things happening simultaneously. You get acute events, which are storm surges, and you have the chronic event, i.e. the slow rising of the water levels. And what uh, the Keele University study um, has done is it has mapped what will happen if you get a storm surge of the kind that uh, is the average for that place coinciding with the projected rise in the water level. Obviously, people are aware that you get this thing called aqua alta in in Venice. This happens periodically. But was what happened in October, I think it was, of this year, significantly worse than than a sort of of regular events where, where the water rises? 
The, the, I think the last one that was as bad as that was about 10 years ago. But the point is that any aqua alta comes into St. Mark's Square because it's the lowest-lying part of the town, and it comes into the Basilica, which is a 1,000 years old, has the most wonderful inlaid floors, and it gets sucked up into the brickwork, which is behind the marble panels on the on the walls, and is, is beginning to affect the mosaics, which are you know 900 years old above. These wonderful mosaics are beginning to fall off because the damp is attacking them. And we all assume that, you know, it's all been going on for so long, it'll all be okay, you know. But things reach a tipping point when suddenly things aren't okay anymore. And we are reaching the tipping point with the building, the housing stock in Venice already, you know, buildings being attacked. And the tipping point will be affecting all the various towns that have been mentioned in this report in different ways. But it will all be immensely expensive to try and compensate for. Um, obviously, the thing that makes Venice so special is its exceptional nature. But but can Venice not be used actually as a sort of an exemplar of what might happen to these other heritage sites? Can can the very clear effects of uh, Venice's situation be used as an argument for uh, transforming these places' attitude to uh, sea level rise? Yes, it certainly can. And there are plenty of scientists working in Venice. In fact, there's more been written about Venice and all its various problems, I think, than any other town around the Mediterranean. Um, it's a question of getting people to work together. But there are two things that have to happen. The scientists have to work together. But at certain, some point, you have to get the authorities to take what the scientists are saying seriously. That is the key missing link at the moment. And what about our listeners? What can they do, do you think, in order to draw this to, to authorities' attention? Are there actions that can be taken by people listening to this? I think uh, if you're in one of the towns that's mentioned, one of these Mediterranean towns, you know, find out, find out who your town councillor is for the environment, uh, get involved, uh, you know, write articles if you're journalists. Awareness is manifest in lots of different ways. Um, you know, act. Okay, Anna, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about this. Thank you for giving me an opportunity. You can read more about climate change and heritage in the art newspaper's December issue, which is out now. We'll be back talking about Art Basel in Miami Beach after this. There have been glassworks on Murano in Venice since 1291, which have survived plague, fire and war but one of the most celebrated furnaces was founded by Gino Cenedesi, soon after the end of the Second World War. From the very start, the Fornace established a reputation for quality and daring. Three major pieces by one of Cenedesi's star artists, Alfredo Barbini, were exhibited at the 1948 Venice Biennale, and these feature in Fire and Light, a selection of highlights from the Cenedesi archives, a sale at Bonhams in New York on the 14th of December. As the sales curator Dan Tolson says, Cenedesi gave his artist carte blanche and the result was some of the most astounding masterpieces in glass of the 20th century. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. It's 15 years since the Art Basel in Miami Beach Fair first descended on the Florida city. David Castillo has had a gallery in Miami for 13 years and finally, in this year's edition, he has a space in the gallery sector, the top section of the fair. David is on the line from Miami now. David, you're from Miami, so I wonder if you might set the scene of what the Miami art world was like before Art Basel came along. 
Sure. So the scene in Miami uh, has always had a gallery scene, for example, has always had a scene of uh, a small cluster of museums and collectors. Um, so if you go back further than Art Basel, you would have obviously the decades in which uh, Miami has always had a gallery presence across various corridors from Biscayne to South Beach to um, uh, Little Haiti and obviously of more recent fame, uh, Wynwood. Uh, so the galleries have always been a little bit everywhere, but this goes back decades, you know, with uh, names like Dorothy Blau uh, and others who uh, showed artists from New York and, and local artists for many, many years. And obviously the museums also have uh, a history and I can go as far back as, as my childhood with the Center for the Fine Arts, which uh, would later become Miami Art Museum and obviously would later become uh, the PAM. That's right. They're the Paris, Paris Art Museum, yeah. The Paris Art Museum Miami, correct, as it's called today. Um, so it was a, a much more emerging scene. It uh, obviously looks nothing like what it looks like today, but there was still the existence of these places. They were just smaller with different focus um, and not so much a part of, uh, of the city's um, uh, of what people consider Miami to be. It wasn't really so much a part of the imprint of the city. It was just uh, small organizations, commercial and nonprofit, that existed, like the Art Center South Florida, which now has grown to be a major nonprofit in Miami, um, or the Bass Museum, which was a much smaller institution, is now a much bigger institution. So obviously what came after Art Basel is quite dramatic. And in terms of you setting up the gallery, you set up a couple of years after Art Basel came to Miami. That's had correct. The, had, had the scene changed significantly even in those two years? In the two years after Art Basel? Yeah, right? yeah. So did, did, I suppose what I'm asking is, did, did Art Basel have an immediate effect? It wasn't immediate because, as you may recall, there was also uh, a postponement because of 9-11. That's right. Uh, so it kind of, you know, got off to a start that wasn't the planned start because of obviously uh, an international tragedy. Um, but it did have an effect immediately in the sense that it generated a lot of excitement locally with the institutions, with the galleries, with the collectors, with the artists, uh, and with local people in general. Uh, but I think it took a little bit longer than two years. I would say within the first four or five years of the fair, is when you see the real transformation, where you see, um, you know, all of these uh, initiatives in place for the Paris Art Museum, for the expansion of the Bass, um, you know, and obviously much later, the ICA uh, grows out of what was uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art in North Miami. So as the years have gone on, it's become even more and more uh, an effort by the city for art to become part of how the city is seen. Obviously, now we have the new convention center, which, when it's finished, is going to have uh, major uh, permanent artworks by Franz Ackerman, Elm Green and Dragset, Ellen Harvey, Joseph Gassuth, Sarah Morris. Uh, and and it's, it's going to add to the stellar collection that the city of Miami Beach already has. Uh, in its collection. So these are 
obviously internationally known artists that become now for the enjoyment of the public of Miami year round. They're for public access and for public benefit. And obviously prior to Art Basel, I'm not so sure that the convention center would have been updated to such a magnificent degree. I mean, it feels very international now, having been in it for the last few days with the booth set up and everything else, it has a totally different feel. I don't, I grew up here and I don't even feel like I'm in the same building, which was, you know, kind of uh, a little bit run down 1970s. And now not only is it refurbished and looks quite splendid, it has these major works of art. And I think Art Basel, I don't think Art Basel definitely has a big uh, part to do with that, just as they do with the growth of the museums, the excitement of the galleries to continue uh, finding neighborhoods that work, to continue putting on exhibitions every December for this international audience. So it has had definitely um, a positive impact um, on, on the city's image and what the city has um, has worked very hard to achieve as far as art and culture becoming more and more a part of how our city is seen. When you founded your gallery, did you have a sort of distinct vision for the kind of art that you wanted to show? It seems to me that there's a, there are, obviously you, you represent a, a very diverse group of artists, but it seems to me that there are sort of common themes amongst them. A hundred percent. So there, I had a very clear vision, which uh, was not popular at the time and <clears throat> which is on trend right now. And we hope that it's not only a trend because obviously when I looked for artists, I'm looking for them as an art historian. I'm looking at them as, uh, as a student of history. So I'm very curious to see <clears throat> what these works of art um, add to the discourse on art. So first and foremost for me is what is unique about these artists? What are they adding to the conversation um, and do I love this work aesthetically? Because with so many artists that you could work with, you obviously have to pick and choose and build very, very close relationships. And I've worked with most of my artists for over a decade. So that's, that's hugely important. While the works are very diverse, there is a very significant narrative that ties them all in together. And that narrative of identity, each one investigates in very different ways, which is what keeps it fascinating and interesting for me as someone that works with them on the day-to-day. Um, and so it could be a very personal investigation of identity from a woman's perspective. It could be an art historical or historical investigation of identity. It could be uh, an investigation of the history of African Americans or the African diaspora. Um, it could be from the perspective of someone born in Latin America or that still lives in Latin America. So those viewpoints, which, as you know, are now in vogue or on trend, you see museums all over the world, not only in the United States, in this mad dash to fill in historical gaps. Um, and galleries have followed suit and are very interested in artists who work around these themes. For me, almost 14 years ago, I wasn't working under the premise that, that I would be on trend or that the market would somehow one day favor my vision for the gallery. I have always worked then and now 
under the premise that my job, my obligation to my artists is to ensure that when I'm dead and when they're dead and people are looking at artists 150 years from now, that I did such great work on their behalf that they remain significant and that they remain relevant to conversations on art and to conversations on the history of art. Does Art Basel Miami Beach give fair opportunities to galleries from Miami? I think Art Basel Miami Beach gives fair opportunities on a global scale. And so I don't think it's part of the premise of what the fair does that they're looking necessarily on a local level. I obviously did Art Basel for the first time a decade ago in 2008 um, in positions and in subsequent years in Art Nova, which is the curated section, and obviously this year for the first time in the established gallery section. So it's not, <clears throat> there's, no, there's no ladder, as it were, or guarantee that you're going to ascend. I, I understand clearly from their position that they're looking at galleries on a global level that have um, institutional relationships, galleries that have um, major clients, galleries that have placed their artists um, into the context of contemporary art at a certain level. And so I think the artists that they look at galleries that have programs with artists that have great critical acclaim. So I think they put that all together to figure out on an international level, which are the galleries that are operating at that level. So I don't necessarily think it's a matter of fair or not fair. I think that they apply the same standards across the globe. So I was by no means expecting in 2008 that I would automatically ascend to the gallery sector a, day, a decade later. But obviously as a gallery now that has sold work to the Guggenheim and MoMA and the Studio Museum and the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago and every institution in Florida, um, that's what they're looking for. And and what about what you're showing in this year's fair? Because you've gone, I mean, there's sort of all sorts of strategies that, that galleries can take in art fairs, aren't there? And um, some people just bring along a representational work by each of their artists, but you've gone very much with a curated booth. So this year I went with opening day, which was yesterday, would have a black and white uh, concept. And many things uh, played into why I wanted to uh, work with black and white. Obviously, um, I was thinking of old master paintings um, and how white and black pigments were used to important effect. You know, some white pigments were poisonous and obviously bone black was made from the bones of deceased animals. But I was also thinking of other historical concepts, how in the modern era, uh, the world was seen for for a long time through that color-coded dualism. And so the world was seen in print media, in television, in movies, uh, in black and white. So people understood the outside world in black and white. Um, and then a step further, because this is a gallery that is about information in a way and is about these narratives, I thought that's also interesting to me because black and white is a term often used in the English language to say it's cut and dry. It's enormously clear and there's no further conversation. But in fact, in black and white, there's enormous nuance. Even if you had seen the booth yesterday in total black and white, you would see that some black and white 
tends more to gray or is more marbleized and more blue. Uh, and so you find it in every single piece, no matter how much you try to be strict with a concept. And of course, finally, black and white is also in America, was, is, and is in other places of the world as well, a racial marker. It defines a person's race. And for many years, it defined their assigned status in the world. So these were all overarching themes that are enormously important and direct and apply to the gallery um, on every scale. And so I went with the theme of black and white. And so over the course of the week, um, the works will shift and color will emerge. So if you see the booth today, there are three works in black and white. I'm, I'm sorry, there are three works in color. The rest are still black and white, but it's, it's easing in with blues. And then eventually, if you see the booth on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the booth will be all in color with typical works by all the artists. And finally, I'm bound to ask, it's an art fair. How's business? Good. So day one has gone well. Um, we have sold approximately half of what we had in the booth. And there's one work on hold for an encyclopedic museum. And so confirmed sales, we had a large painting by Shanique Smith sold for $60,000 to UBS, which is a sponsor of the fair and has, is a client of mine for, for years now. They've bought other works by artists of the gallery. Uh, Abel Kisayon sold to a collection in Michigan uh, in the range of thirty dollars to $40,000. A Pepe Mar painting sold for $28,000 to a prominent Miami collection. And a Von Spann painting sold for $25,000 to uh, a very important American collection, which is based in the Midwest. So it's off to a great start. And there's a Sanford Biggers piece that was put on hold yesterday, as I said, by an encyclopedic museum. And that's a $60,000 quilt painting. It's been very well received. And then to have kind of, you know, your investment, the financial investment come back to you um, is always nice. It's always obviously one of the goals, as you say, because it's an art fair. David, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with the rest of the fair. Thank you so much. Art Basel in Miami Beach continues until Sunday the 9th of December. The art newspaper team is, as ever, in Miami and reporting from the fair. If you're there, do pick up a copy of our daily newspapers. If you're not, you can read all the reports at theartnewspaper.com. And that's all for this week. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. Our main Twitter account and Facebook are at The Art Newspaper, and you'll find us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. If you subscribe to the print edition of the art newspaper before 10th of December, you'll receive the year ahead, our guide to exhibitions, fairs and biennials worldwide in 2019 with your first copy. Subscribe at theartnewspaper.com. Join us next week when we'll be doing a roundtable on restitution. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>